seats up here. Everything that I'm going to do this morning revolves around this table. I want to invite you guys to come up here. Come on up. It's okay. Come on up here. Okay, please. Kids, come here. Seriously, can you, can you see where you are? Okay, as long as you can see. Actually, come, come, come sit right there, okay? Okay, as I'm saying, what you see before you this morning is a typical table setting found in millions of Jewish homes throughout the world at Passover. There are three things that I want for us all to see here this morning. One is Christ, the bread of life. Two is Christ, the Lamb of God. And three are the elements of redemption found in the Passover. Once again, that's Christ, the bread of life, Christ, the Lamb of God, and the elements of redemption found in the Passover. If you have your Bibles with you, and even if you don't, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 22, and I'll be reading verses 7 through 13. Again, that's the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. Now, all four of the Gospels give an account of the Passover, but the book of Luke is unique. And the reason why I say it's unique is because it stresses something. If you listen to me as I read, or if you happen to be reading along with me, you'll notice one particular word that's mentioned four times in this short passage. I'm beginning in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7, where it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large, furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they departed and found everything, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, before I tell you the one word that was mentioned four times in that short passage, I want to ask you a few questions. One of the things that you'll discover about me this morning is that I'm someone who believes in congregational participation. You're not going to sit out there and do nothing. I'm going to ask you some questions, and I expect you to respond. Some of your responses will be just to raise your hand to show me that you know what I'm talking about. Other responses will actually be verbal responses. You will actually speak out in church. Simple, simple questions I'm going to ask. Here's the first one. How many of you recognize a passage of Scripture that I just read as being from the time when Jesus was about to enter the city of Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. How many of you recognize that? Okay, you can raise your hands. It's okay. That's right. Now, how many of you also know that in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, it said that there lived about a million people? Not as many of you knew that, right? Now that you know both of those things, don't you think it's strange that Jesus would have gone ahead, as he did in that passage of Scripture, and told his disciples to go and find one man in the city of Jerusalem who was carrying a pitcher of water. Do you think that's strange, given the fact that there were a million people there at the time? Do you think that's strange? It's not strange. 
the reason why I say it's not strange is because, you see, in Jesus' day, it was women's work to carry water. And not only in Jesus' day, but in our day today even, it's women's work to carry water. And so when the disciples came upon that one man who was carrying a pitcher of water, they came upon that one man who was carrying a pitcher of water, and they found that to be quite exceptional. And so that man, um, well, what would you say? They followed him. And they went, and they found Jesus, and... I've just lost my train of thought. Come here. Help me out here. They went and they found the place where they were to, quote, unquote, prepare the Passover. That's right. Now, the one word mentioned four times in that short passage was preparation. Preparation for the Passover today might begin, well, it may begin one week in advance. It may begin two weeks in advance, even a month in advance. And what will happen at this time will be that the houses must be cleansed. Not they'll, not only be ha- they'll not only be cleansed of your usual dust and dirt, but they'll also be cleansed of a substance known as leaven. This is a piece of unleavened bread. We call it matzah. Now, how many of you know what the Apostle Paul says that leaven usually represents? Sin. Being unleavened means that the bread is without sin. Well, come back. Now, in a Jewish home, this means a few things. Well, first of all, this, this unleavened bread reminds us of something. Because since the Bible says that leaven usually represents sin, this reminds us of one who was unleavened without sin, our Lord Jesus. But because of that, We've got to get rid of a few things in order to be able to celebrate Passover because leavened bread at the Seder is a big no-no. And so one of the things that happens at this time is that the houses must be cleansed. But they'll not only have to be cleansed of your usual dust and dirt, but also the leaven, which does represent sin. So it's a little bit interesting in a Jewish home because it's a little different than what you might expect. And this... I'm going to mention something to you that may make some of you happy and others of you quite sad. You know that in a Jewish home, it is not the woman's responsibility to see that the houses are cleansed? You know what that means, ladies? Well, don't be too upset because, you know, in a... In a Jewish home, even though it is technically the husband's responsibility to see that the house is clean, So one of the things that we do is we take some unusual utensils. Right, and what we do is we'll take these things because uh, the woman of the house will have cleansed the house from top to bottom. She'll um, clear from the, the closets and she'll clean the walls. She'll actually will actually even paint our home at this time. In fact, where do you think the spring cleaning comes from if not the Passover? Well, you see, because it is the man's responsibility to take and clean the house, what he'll do is he'll take these strange utensils. He'll take a feather and he'll take a spoon. And perhaps the wife has left that token piece of leaven on the windowsill. And what he'll do is he'll take the feather, sweep the crumbs into the spoon, wrap it all in this white linen napkin. And then the father and his son will proceed to go to the center of town, to the local synagogue where they'll find other men and their sons. And what they'll be doing is they'll be waiting around a huge bonfire. And they'll be waiting and waiting 
and they'll be waiting for the rabbi to come. You see, once the rabbi arrives, he'll say a blessing over all of these things, and all the men will toss it into the fire. Thus, at this point, the houses will not only be, well, they'll actually be hygienically clean, but they'll also be considered spiritually clean. And at this point, the father will come home from work, he'll take off his jacket, and he'll put on something that looks like this. This is called a kittle. It's a white, kingly robe. You see, in Judaism, white symbolizes royalty. It's also a symbol of purity and joy. Not purple, as in many churches, but white. In addition to putting on this kittle, this white robe, he'll also pick up a cap that looks like this. This is called a mitre or a cantor's cap. And if placed on the head properly, it should resemble a crown. For you see, the man is considered the king of his house, and his wife is considered to be his queen. Then he proceeds to pick up a book that looks like this. This is called a Haggadah. Can you all say that? That's not too bad, but I think you can do better. One more time. Much better. Now, Haggadah means the telling, or the telling of the story of Passover. The father will open this to the first page. Now, I know that for some of you, you may be thinking that I'm opening this book backwards. But if you look at the book carefully, you're going to see it's beautifully illustrated. It tells the whole story of Passover. It has songs and prayers within. And one of its characteristics is that it's a book that's written both in Hebrew and in English. The English portion is written from left to right. The Hebrew portion is written from right to left. You tell me which has been around longer, Hebrew or English. Hebrew, of course. Now the father does turn to the first page, and this is what he reads. Blessed art thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by his commandments and commanded us to search out the leaven. All manner of leaven that is in my possession, that I have not observed, searched out, or had cognizance of, shall be regarded as null and be common property, even as the dust of the earth. Thus, at this point... The houses, again, are not just hygienically clean, but they're considered spiritually clean as well. And it's at this time that we can begin the Seder. Now, Seder means service or order of service. And as we begin the Seder, we first need to light the candles. But before we light the candles, I'd like to ask a few questions. First of all, up until this point, who's been doing all the hard work? The woman, right? She's been doing the cleaning of the house. And who's been having all the fun and getting all the credit? Well, that's, that's not fair, is it? Well, I wasn't sure if I heard a man. Did you hear him? I think the men, Pastor Nathan, are very smart in this congregation. They know when to speak up and when not to. Uh, Let me tell you, in my home today, and in the home of many of my Jewish brethren, the lady of the house will still do the much of the hard house cleaning, and she'll, she'll, she'll be somewhat happy about it. But really, we have a lady of the house light the candles and not the man, because, you see, it wasn't through the seed of man or the will of man that the light of the world came in, but rather it was through the seed of woman and the will of God that Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world. So I'm going to ask Janie if she'll come, and she'll light those candles for us, and then we'll continue.
blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to light the lights of passion. Amen. Amen. Now you see before you four cups. Each one of the cups is taken at an appropriate time during the Passover. Each one of the cups has a specific name. The four cups by themselves represent a fourfold promise. That promise is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And while we won't turn there this morning, if you're taking notes, and I welcome you to doing that, you might like to write down that scripture reference. Now, normally in a Jewish home, at each place setting, you would not find four cups. You'd only find one cup. But that one cup would get filled four different times during the actual Passover Seder. I've placed four cups here, though, so that I could point out the four different times that they're taken, as well as their four different names. The first cup is called the Cup of Blessing. The second cup is known as the Cup of Affliction or Plagues. The third cup is called the Cup of Redemption. And the fourth cup is called the Cup of Hallel or Praise. Going back to the first cup, this is called the Cup of Blessing. And a blessing is chanted over this cup. This is how it goes. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. The first cup, known as the cup of blessing, many times today is confused with the communion cup which Jesus passed amongst his disciples at that Last Supper, which incidentally was a Passover celebration. But no, truly, this is just the cup of blessing. Now you see before you what's commonly called a Seder plate. And if you look at this plate closely, you're going to notice that it has six compartments to it. The six compartments correspond to the items that are found here on the table. Normally, the items are in little glass dishes, and they're placed right on the plate. But in order for you to see what the plate looks like, that's why I've kept the items off to the side. At this point, I'd like to explain those items to you, tell you what the rabbis say they represent. This first item is called karpas, greens, usually parsley, celery, or lettuce. Now, the rabbis say that the greens are to represent life. This next item, which is generally not found on the Seder plate, but is on the table at Passover, All it is is ordinary salt water. And the rabbis say that the salt water is to represent tears. At the appropriate time, we're told to take from the greens, which represent life, dip them into the salt water, which represents tears, and eat. Because the rabbis say that life is immersed in tears. This next element... Bitter herbs. You call it horseradish? We call it Jewish Claritin. I don't know if any of you have sinus problems. But if you do after the service, come up and take one whiff, and I promise you'll be cleared up for a couple of hours. Now, the rabbis tell us that this bitter herb is to represent the bitterness that my ancestors suffered while in bondage in Egypt. And at the appropriate time, we're told to take a piece of the unleavened bread, then we're told to take a good, healthy portion, usually about a tablespoonful. Now, I'd like to ask if there are any adult volunteers. It's got to be a man. You know why it's got to be a man? 
It's got to be a man because there's always a man, even if he didn't identify himself, who thinks it's fair for the women to do all the hard work. So there's no man here, huh, who said that. I, I, listen, I appreciate it, ladies. I appreciate it. But you know what? I got to tell you, I got I to tell you, I always have someone else I can ask. Do you know who that is? When I don't get a volunteer, that's a man. But I understand, you know, is Jeremy one of the pastors? No, 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 no. You could, yeah, it's okay. I'd like to ask a vote of the congregation. How many of you would like to see Jeremy versus Pastor Nathan? Okay, is that for Jeremy? And how many for Pastor Nathan? Jeremy, I saw you raise your hand. That's okay, that's okay. I'll take care of it. Anyway, we are told to take a tablespoonful at one time. They will, but I won't. You know, if you take that much horseradish at one time, a strange physiological reaction comes over you. You begin to cry. Tears roll down your face. Why? Because it's to remind us of the bitterness that my ancestors suffered while in bondage in Egypt. Now, I need to stop for a moment. You know, you just need to know that I'm not here to do stand-up. Okay, and I apologize for my flubs earlier in the presentation this morning. But, you know, I'm not here to do stand-up. And all of these objects represent very interesting and very important themes within the Passover message. Remember what I said. The greens are to represent life. The salt water is to represent tears. It's natural that something that would bring tears to our eyes would represent the bitterness of labor. So that bitterness of labor is represented by that bitter herb. The next item is what we call haroset. Now, haroset is generally a mixture of chopped up apples, nuts, raisins, honey, a little bit of wine, giving it a really sweet flavor. Normally, it's all chopped up together. Normally, it becomes a dark brownish color. And the rabbis say that this sweet mixture is to represent the mortar that went into building the pyramids and the storehouses for Pharaoh. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how could something that would taste so sweet represent such bitter labor? I mean, it's easy to understand, like I said, how the greens can represent life, the salt water, tears, the bitter herbs, bitterness. But why would something that would taste so sweet represent such bitter labor? Well, you know what the rabbis say. They say that even the bitterest of labor tasted sweet when we knew that our redemption drew near, the haroset. The next element is a hard-boiled roasted egg. Now, this hard-boiled roasted egg is to represent the daily temple sacrifice. Let me explain what I mean. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Now, the temple was the only place where the Jewish people were allowed to make a sacrifice. When the temple was destroyed, the Jewish people could no longer make a sacrifice. Therefore, they've taken the symbol of an egg. Let me ask you a few questions. How many times a day does a chicken normally lay an egg? Once, right? And usually when? Morning. The hard-boiled roasted egg is to represent the daily temple sacrifice given once a day in the morning and roasted with fire. This next element is a bitter root, usually an onion or a horseradish root. Now, the rabbis say that this bitter root is to represent the way that we come into the world. You see, it's through sin and pain that we enter the world. Therefore, this is to represent the bitter root of life. 
The final element normally found on a Seder plate is this. And this is actually a shank bone of a lamb. And it's to represent the lamb that was slain for us at Passover. Now today, my traditional Jewish people will not eat lamb at Passover. And the reason why they won't eat lamb at Passover is because today we have no more temple. Without a temple, there is no more sacrifice on the part of Jewish people. So today, traditional Jewish people don't eat lamb at Passover. That's why we don't eat it at that time, at least traditional Jewish people. We, as Jewish believers in Jesus, we do eat lamb at Passover. You see, for us, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed once and for all through Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen? Now we come to the second cup. And what was this called? Plagues or affliction. Very good. You know, I'm giving you an awful lot of material. I don't expect you to remember everything I share with you this morning. But if you can take a couple of things with you that you didn't know before you came, I would be most gratified. This is called the cup of affliction or plagues. At first, we don't drink from this cup, though eventually we do. At first, what we do is we take our finger and we drop a drop for each one of the plagues which God brought upon Pharaoh. And the plagues went something like this. Blood, frogs, hail, lice, flies, moraine, boils, locusts, darkness, and death to the firstborn. Now let's recall that first Passover. You know, God never was, nor is he today, nor will he ever be a partial God. Yet he brought ten plagues upon Pharaoh. And after each one of those plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, the tenth and the final plague was to be the slaying of the firstborn. Not just of Pharaoh, but of all of Egypt, all of the Hebrews, and all of the beasts. But God made a way by which all could be saved. You see, he commanded Moses to tell all the people to take a yearling lamb without spot or blemish, to take the lamb and to slay it, collecting its blood in a basin, then to take a green spongy material, hyssop to be exact, to dip the hyssop into the blood, and to place the blood on the two side posts and the top lintel of the door. That's the two side posts and the top lintel of the door, thus sealing the house with the blood of the lamb. The night of Passover came, and the death angel flew, and he came upon the houses that were sealed with the blood of the lamb, and he, he passed over. That was where we got the name for the holiday. Now at this point, we come to what unfortunately for many of my people today is the most important part of the Passover. And I say unfortunately because it's the meal. And it's not that the meal isn't a great time of feasting and celebration. The problem is that too much emphasis has been placed on the meal, rather than on the rest of the beauty and the significance of the Passover. Before I tell you the kinds of things that you'd get to eat at Passover, I want to share with you one of the many traditions. This is known as the tradition of the matzah tosh or matzah bag. Now look at this very carefully. Because if you look at this carefully, while it's one matzah tosh or one matzah bag, it has three compartments to it. Notice. One. Two. And then there is a third compartment in here. See? The third compartment. If you ask two or three rabbis what the unity represented, you might get two or three different answers. One might say that it represents the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another might say that it represents the order of worship, the priests, the Levites, and the people. We, however, as Jewish believers in Jesus, feel that this matatash, this unity, represents our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
Now, before the meal begins, the father will take from the matzotash. And he'll take that middle piece and he'll break it. The smaller portion he'll put back in the matzotash. The larger portion, this is known as the afikomen. Afikomen is a Greek word, which means dessert or that which comes after. What he'll do is he'll take this and he'll wrap it in a piece of white linen. Then he'll hide it, or if I might, bury it till later on in the service. Now, you may be wondering the significance of those pillows besides the fact that they hide the afikomen. Well, if you'll recall that first Passover with me again, you'll remember that God commanded the people to have their loins girded, sandals on their feet. They were to be ready to leave in a moment's notice. In fact, the Jewish people at that first Passover, they partook standing up. Why? Because they were in terrible fear that at any moment they would be ushered out of the land. Those pillows represent the fact that today, as we participate in the Passover, we can do so sitting back, reclining at table, because we don't have the fear that one such as Pharaoh would usher us out of the land. Now, at this point, I'd like to give you an idea of the kinds of things that you'd get to eat at Passover. You might start off with appetizers, and you'd have such things as chopped chicken livers and onions, eggs and onions, gefilte fish and onions. Noticing the common theme here? Then there's a soup course, nice chicken soup, which I could use right about now. Then there's a main course with a number of different types of meats and vegetables. You may have chicken. You may have roast beef, you may have turkey, you may have all three. You see, Passover is a time when families get together, but it is also another special time. And I will explain this to you. If you have Jewish friends and you've never been to a Passover Seder before, you need to let the Jewish friends know that they have a responsibility because Jewish people are responsible to invite those into their home who have no place to go. So this is a really great time for you to be invited to a Jewish friend's home and to be able to share the truth of the gospel right within the Passover with them. Now, there are all these things that you get to eat, but don't forget about dessert. There are desserts that follow. But the Passover can't be complete without everyone taking from the afikomen. But it was hidden. Now, in a traditional Passover like this, it would take between two and four hours. And the reason for the length is because much of the Haggadah is read, the cups are explained, the elements are taken, the meal is participated in, and so by this time there isn't anyone who can sit still at the table any longer, but especially the children. So a game was developed in the centuries following Christ's advent here on earth known as the Afi Komen Hunt. And it's at this time that the children are sent throughout the house to search out the afikomen. And the child who finds it gets a chance to bring it back to the head of the house who will pay a reward for it. Once the reward has been paid, the head of the house will take it, he'll unwrap it, he'll bless it, and then he'll break it. And he'll break it into at least olive-sized pieces passing it around to the people sitting at the table with him. And you see, it has to be in at least an olive-sized piece because the rabbis say that nothing smaller than an olive-sized piece may be blessed. Well, you know, Jesus took this bread at that Last Supper, that Passover meal. He took the same bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. 
Now, I need to point out a few things about this bread I think you'll find very interesting. The first thing I said about it before was that it was unleavened. And that should remind us of Jesus because he too was unleavened without sin. Then you notice I took the middle piece of matzah and I broke it. A portion of it I wrapped in a piece of white linen. Then it was hidden or buried for a time. Then it was brought back after having been paid for with a price. Who else do you know who was unleavened, broken, wrapped in white linen, buried for a time, brought back after having been paid for with a price. And then, on top of all of that, if you look at this bread in front of the candle, you should be able to see that it's striped and it's pierced. Can you see that? The bread is striped and pierced. Take a look. In the Gospel of Isaiah... And I always call it gospel because it means good news. In the Gospel of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, it speaks of one who was to come, who was to be pierced through for our transgressions. He was to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and with his stripes we are, we are healed. Who does this bread remind you of, if not our Lord Jesus? Then we come to the third cup, and this is called the cup of redemption. And today, the head of the house will take this cup, He'll chant a blessing as I did earlier. He'll drink from the cup. He'll pass it around to all those sitting at the table with him and all will drink of the cup. And all will recall the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Well, you know, Jesus took this cup as well at that last supper. He took it along with this bread. He took the cup. He blessed it. He poured it out for his disciples and he said, take, drink. This is my blood which has been poured out for you in the new covenant, the new testament. This do in remembrance of me. And all his disciples drank. And all his disciples recalled the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. But you know what? They began to understand. They just began to understand that he was speaking of a far greater redemption. That being from out of the bondage of slavery to sin. Now, I'm not sure if you recognize what I just pointed out to you, but in case you didn't, what I just pointed out is the typical communion service found right within the traditional Jewish Passover. How unfortunate that more of my own Jewish people don't know the significance of Christ within their own Passover. Now, you may be wondering the significance of this cup. This is Elijah's cup. In Jewish tradition, it's said that Elijah must come first to usher in the coming of the Messiah. And, you know, every year there's a full place setting with food and drinks set out for Elijah. And every year at the end of the meal... The children are sent to the door to open it, for it's said that Elijah would come through the door and take from the cup. And that would be the way we would know the Messiah is coming that year. Well, you know what? Every year we have disappointed children and disappointed adults because Elijah simply does not come. We feel, however, that one has already come in the power and the spirit of Elijah, that being John the Baptist. One day John was baptizing at the Jordan River and he beheld a bronze-bearded Jew coming over the face of a mountain. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the what? The sin of the world. John the Baptist truly was our Elijah. Then we come to the fourth and the final cup. And this is called the cup of Hallel or praise. Hallel being a shortened version of Hallelujah. And it's at this time that we sing praises to our God. Not only for the redemption from out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, but that greater redemption, that being from out of the bondage of slavery to sin. 
In closing this portion of the service, before I have my wife come up, I'd like to close with two verses. You don't need to turn there. They're found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and they're verses 7 and 8. And the reason I like to use these two verses is because I believe that they capture the entire spirit of the Passover. See if you agree with me. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth.